This morning, we are going to read from 1 Timothy again. And we are going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 6. So we're moving forward. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You got a short one, Alice. <laughs> I was just thinking as we were singing and my mask was irritating my face again and um, what the situations and the, the, um, that we're worshiping under, having to cover face and comparing it, thinking about, and that's not to make light of this, but those around the world that are worshiping under circumstances where they have to hide their whole body uh, to worship. And I was just thinking, what if every time we put one of these on, it was a reminder for us to pray for those who have to worship in circumstances much more difficult than ours. Not to minimize this, I'm not trying to do that, or any frustrations you have, but what if it could be an exercise where every time we put one on, we thought of the believers in China or North Korea or other places uh, where they worship um, under much more difficult circumstances. If that's something that comes out of it, that would be a blessing, wouldn't it? Um, so let's think of positive ways to try to even work through this uh, season again. Well, we address a really challenging topic today, don't we? And one of the things I love about going through books of the Bible from start to finish is that you can't skip the hard stuff, can you? And I like that, but then I also come to passages in some weeks and I go, you know, like, what, what do I do? Well, the topic of slavery in the New Testament is the topic uh, today, and um, we think about that today, and what could these two verses possibly have to do with us today in our current context? We don't practice slavery. Um, we all understand it's wrong. So why do we spend time here today on this passage when it would be easy to skip over? Uh, next week, we're going to go back, actually. We had a, a mix-up, or not a mix-up, but a change of schedule with one of our visiting mentors, and he had been assigned 17 to 25, which was going to be last week, but I wanted him to keep that passage because it's important. And didn't want to ask him to guest preach and uh, preach on slavery. So uh, we went ahead, we're going back, and then we're, gonna, we're just mixing up the end of the book a little bit, but that'll be okay. We'll, we'll get it all. Well, why do we do it? We believe the Word of God is inspired, Spirit-breathed Word of God, and the Word of the authors, too, is inspired by God. And so if God preserved it, we believe it's important and it has absolute relevancy even for today. We've been working our way through this letter to 1 Timothy, calling it Building a Healthy Church. And in this Mentor Appreciation Month here at Bethany, we've been listening to Paul, the mentor, speak into a young pastor, Timothy's life, and the church he's been given responsibility for. Remember, we've called it kind of a kingdoms, Kingdom Civics 101, Kingdom of God, how do we function and live together? How's the church to live as citizens of God's kingdom? Paul makes this purpose really clear in the purpose statement of the letter. We've read it every week. We'll keep doing it. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that purpose, there it is, 
If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So today, as we look into the inspired word of God and this challenging topic of biblical slavery, maybe one question has popped into your mind, as it has for many others who've even challenged Christianity and said, how dare they? Why didn't Jesus or Paul call for the immediate abolishment of slavery? Lots of people have asked that. Why didn't they do it? In fact, some Christians even in our own nation's history of slavery in the 17th to 19th centuries used verses like this to justify their own owning of African slaves. So why didn't they? Why didn't Paul just come along and absolutely just level it, or Jesus even? We're going to answer this question this morning. Along with seeing that there is great value in the gospel redeeming the call to servanthood and in shaping the way we respond, you and I, to those that we're subordinate to. So grab your outline. Hopefully you got it there. Let's begin by answering this really tough question by looking at the cultural context. One of the most important rules for biblical interpretation and exegesis, it's called, that's where you get the meaning of a passage, is context. Context, context, context. Like in, what is it in real estate? Location, location, location. In the Bible, it's context, context, context. The surrounding text, but also the context of the culture into which the words were written. It's not our culture, was it? It's not our culture. And it's very, uh, and it's an incredibly complex issue when we look at the ancient world, because that's what we want to do. What did it mean in Paul's time when he wrote this? What was slavery like when he addressed this? Well, it's very different than what comes into your modern mind when you hear the word slavery. It's, it's pretty different. When, you, when I say slavery to us in our context of our culture in the last few hundred years, we instantly think of uh, the African slave trade that was based on race and skin color. That does not mean that Roman slavery is okay. We're going to talk about that today. Ancient world, Roman slavery. It doesn't mean that. It emerged in a sinful world and because of sinful fallen conditions, Roman ancient slavery. And at this time in the culture, it was estimated by an NIV study dictionary I looked at this week that there were some 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Think about that. 50 to 60 million. Sometimes even half of a city's population, like Ephesus, where Timothy is located, sometimes half of a city's population would have been slaves. Timothy's own church, there would have been slaves who worshipped alongside their masters in the same congregation even. There would have been ex-slaves in Timothy's church who had freemen, they were called, who had purchased their freedom. Some of the elders in the church probably owned slaves. The Roman form, uh, all this to say that the Roman form of slavery was woven deeply into their economics and was not based on skin color or race, actually. Again, that doesn't mean it's right. It was just different. It was more of an arrangement of financial or social status. And by the time of the first century, when Paul writes, slavery was actually on the decline and conditions had improved. 
for slaves. Most slaves would purchase their freedom in their lifetime, and most slaves were freed before the age of 30. Slaves could also own property for themselves, make money off the property to purchase their freedom. And actually, um, many sold themselves into slavery for the security it offered them so they could find a pathway to Roman citizenship. Philip Towner, in his commentary, said that slaves often lived separate lives from and separate places from their masters and held jobs even as merchants, owned businesses, and were even government officials. So what Paul is addressing here, first and foremost, is something very different from racist-based African slavery that was practiced in our nation. Now, I'm not trying to paint a picture that it was ideal. I'm not. Please hear that today. But the conditions were improving at this time. There was reform taking place. And even Paul says enslavement and kidnapping is wrong in this very letter. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. As he's speaking of those in a list who he says are lawless and disobedience, it says the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers or kidnappers there, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Slavery was still wrong and still evil, and still many slaves were faced cruelty, even in this time, and abuse, including sexual and harsh labor. It's just not quite the same context as our world today. It's a different context, and therefore, it was not immediately abolished by Jesus or Paul. It's really complex. So let's look also at the cultural impact, because that matters too as we answer this question today. Let's look at the cultural impact that would have taken place if Christianity had abolished slavery immediately. Now, I believe the reason we don't have slavery in this world today is Christianity. Think William Wilberforce and others And there actually still is slavery today. I think I saw some numbers this week. There's actually more people enslaved today than any time in history, right now. Sex trafficking, different issues like that, and actually many in the United States right now. Uh, Sex trafficked. So slavery still is a thing. But I believe that Christianity was the engine, the, the, the seed, the root of what abolished it as an accepted practice in the larger culture. So the, the, the immediate cultural impact, what would it have been? Imagine if 50 or 60 million individuals who were slaves in the Roman Empire and it was immediately overturned. That would mean massive economic upheaval, an immediate collapse of the economy, and poverty for not just slaves, but basically everyone. Destroy many lives. And yet, now again, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 7, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. He knows it's better to be free and encourage, if possible, even to gain that freedom. But an all-out assault on slavery, as Kent Hughes said, would have labeled wrongly Christianity as primarily culturally subversive. Like, that's all it was about, just to upheave uh, and, and, and subvert the culture, and it would have brought an unnecessary attention when Paul already knows the seeds of the gospel, when unleashed and bearing fruit, would over time abolish slavery. And it did, by changing hearts first before social reform. 
The gospel was going after the hearts of the slave owners and therefore transforming the whole society in a better way and probably more longer-lasting way rather than just an external social reform change. That's why, of course, we would want something like abortion to be illegal. But even more than that, we'd want it to be unthinkable, right? A heart transformation is similar to what's going on here in an issue which has got just as much grave uh, consequences. So let's look at the gospel impact then. We've got the cultural impact, the cultural context, the cultural impact. Now the gospel impact, before we look at the text, Paul knows the gospel is first interested in spiritual reformation. That doesn't mean cultural transformation is not a part of the project of the kingdom of God. It is. But he knows that first and foremost, that spiritual reformation will have a much greater and long-lasting cultural impact because we're all about, in Christianity, transformation from the inside out, heart transformation. The spreading of the gospel would surely mean the end of slavery. In a passage similar to ours with overtones of ours, Paul speaks of the relationship uh, in light of Christ in the gospel. Take a look at Ephesians 6 on the screen. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God, from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Here's the gospel impact. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So you see there, Paul understands, and he's even saying, the gospel will impact this relationship of slave to master. Even if it wasn't immediately abolished, he knows it's going to transform and someday come through to an end through this. How could it not? With the value and dignity and worth of each human being that the Bible teaches and the fact that Christ died for all. But when obeying and submitting, Paul says to the servant, to the slave in this context, do your work as if you were working for Christ. And Christ will see it. He says, masters, don't you know you both have a greater master in heaven? So treat them as you would Christ and stop threatening them. Or in the breaking down of walls that take place in the gospel, this would clearly transform the relationship, giving no room for self-righteousness based on gender or ethnicity or class. Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. So Jesus and Paul in particular addressed this complex issue as they could in the appropriate cultural context looking at the cultural impact and the gospel impact. As we now look at the verses, it's clear when we look at these verses now, there was real tension in the Ephesian church, probably because of verses like this actually, because there was a new spiritual freedom and, and equal standing that Christ gave them, right? We're all on equal footing at the cross. 
all in need of salvation through grace. And so now this equal footing here was probably causing tension, misconduct and tension in the church that would be divisive to the gospel and to the name of Christ and to the mission. And Paul couldn't have that. And Timothy couldn't either. This would hurt the church and its reputation as there was friction and tension growing between these differing relations in the church. Remember, Paul's made this the thrust of the letter. The thrust of this letter is, and that's the context we just see the biblical, this passage in, the thrust of the letter is how outsiders think of us. That's the thrust of this letter for the church. How those outside of the church view us. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, true through 4. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but what Paul said in that was, pray for your leaders so you can live peaceful and live quiet, godly lives so that people can be saved. So people can come to know the truth, the knowledge of the truth, verse 4 says there. In other words, don't get in the way, church, Paul says to Timothy, of Jesus' message with your conduct. It's the primary thrust of this letter. It means if we live obedient lives in front of the watching world, the gospel will spread. Here's another one from the same book to show this thrust of it. Elders must be thought of well by outsiders. There it is again. So that the church and they don't fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. It's vital, Paul is saying, we do all we can to be spoken of well by outsiders, and the success of the gospel is connected to this. It's the main thrust of this letter. And to young widows, he said, marry, remember a couple weeks ago, marry so you don't fall into behavior that would give the enemy ground. Again, outsiders. Don't do anything to get in the way and hinder Jesus and the message. So now Paul speaks to Christian slaves and how they're to treat a non-Christian master and a, a Christian master. And he was coming to this, you might be thinking, okay, I get this, the cultural context is different today, but what does this have to do with us? What could this possibly have to do with you and I? Well, each and every one of us is accountable to someone. We all live in relationships of authority and accountability to employers and in marriages and children with parents and in the church and even we've been talking this last week's about the government. We all live in relationships of accountability. God ordered the world this way. He structured the world this way. And, and to think even bigger than that, we are all accountable and subservient to God. Each and every one of us. He's ordered the world. So, so let's take a look. Let's take a look at first slaves with their non-Christian masters. Here's how we're kind of phrasing this. We should live for the salvation of those we are accountable to with an attitude of servitude. It's verse 1 there. Even though right now the slaves that Paul's addressing has to live in this unjust, unbiblical arrangement. He encourages them to honor their unbelieving master. Let's look at the verse again. We're going to read it again because we've only got two verses today. Look down at verse 1 with me. Let all who are under a yoke 
And that's constricting, isn't it? A yoke, we know what it's for with animals. As bondservants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and teaching may not be reviled. So it's unbelieving masters here, as verse 2 clearly points to uh, believing masters. It's pr- probably Paul assuming here we understand that he's referring to a slave that has a non-believing master or not a follower of Christ. And what Paul says is really quite radical. He says, be the best servant slave you can be and give all honor to your master. In fact, it's been increasing in these passages. Widows was honor, uh, elders was even more honor, and now he says it's all honor. It's been increasing in each of the last few weeks. Because he too is an image bearer. He too is human. He too is a creature of God. And if you do this, he says in that verse, servant, you will protect the name and the teaching, he says in verse 1. You'll protect the gospel. You'll protect the name of God and how you live. He says, live primarily for the glory of God, even more than your freedom, he tells the slave. That's radical. He says, live more for God's glory, even in this unjust moment in your life, than even for your freedom. Colossians 3.22, bondservants, it's Paul's words in another place, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, please hear today, we're not making a case today that someone should stay today in an abusive relationship. It's not what we're getting at here. Or that um, there would never be an opportunity today for someone to move from a relationship where there was abuse taking place. That's not what we're saying here. But in this cultural context of slave and master, Paul says, obey in everything. An attitude of servitude, not to gain their favor, but for fear of pleasing the Lord. That was to be their motive. That was to be the reason they still got up out of bed and did the work they were asked to do and even forced to do. Not for people, but live for the Lord. See your obedience as unto Him. You're doing it for Him, not for the Master. You're doing it for Him. We're back to our Ephesians 6 passage again. He says in the same passage, Obey with fear and trembling, an attitude of servitude as you would Christ. Live for as you, as you would for Christ. Obey with fear and trembling as you would Christ. Do you think about, I had this question this week in my mind. Do you think about your earthly obedience with this much concern? I was challenged this week. Especially as it relates to the non-Christians in your life who know you're a Christian as the master here would with the Christian slave. Or people you work with, or your neighbor, or your unbelieving family, or with your boss. Think about that one. (laughs) Do we think about obedience with this much, like, focus and intention? As Paul says to a slave, 
See, the gospel makes or should make inroads into every area of your life. It's got lines that go out from it, avenues of truth that connect to every area of your life. And what Paul is saying here to this slave, he's saying even in this unjust context, obedience matters. I mean, we wouldn't be surprised today, let's say we open this passage up today, and it said, you know what? Tell that master to take a hike. Tell him you're Christian now. And Christians have freedom in Christ, and the gospel levels the power job, power structure, so take this job and shove it, right? <laughs> we would not be surprised if Paul said that, and we might even cheer him on. Take this job and shove it. But he doesn't. He's so concerned with the name of God and the teaching of God that he tells a slave to treat their master with honor so the name won't be tarnished. He essentially says to the slave, live more for the salvation of your master than for your own freedom. Think about that. I don't know if I could do that. I don't think I could, actually. Especially on my own power. And that is something. That is absolutely something. Live for the salvation of your master essentially more than for your own freedom. He says if you can get your freedom, purchase it, it's great. But in the meantime, how you live matters. Think about those in authority over us right now. Now, nothing, none of us has anything close to a slave master oppression. None of us in this room. But think about those that you are in somewhat of a accountable relationship to. And Paul says, obey for the sake of the name, for the gospel is at stake. Do you think of in your life obedience with, with others that you're accountable to for the sake of their salvation? Paul did. Look what he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I'm free from all as a Roman citizen... I've made myself a slave, a servant to all, that I might win more of them. That's something. That's an attitude and a mindset that I have trouble getting, wrapping my mind around. And if you're like me, which you probably are, you probably do too. Obey for the sake of the gospel in the name of Jesus and for your master's salvation more than your own freedom? I have to speak clear and a bit, I guess I would say, bluntly for a moment. We've made some grueling choices at Bethany Church as it relates to the mask mandate. This week again in our elder meeting again, it, it was really hard. And as I said already today, it was a frustrating and it is to me, as it is to our elders, as it is to many of you. I get that for some of you, this moment to obey is like, it feels like a little death. And we've actually lost some families because we required masks. And it actually would have been a really great church growth strategy. And it's been really tempting 
to be the loudest, most vocal voice on civil disobedience right now. I can tell you it's been really tempting for me as your pastor to let this opportunity for church growth go and actually to see our church shrink. We could do that. I could have done it. We could have done it months ago as a church and as a board. But I think what we would have been doing is gathering a bunch of like-minded people around a cause that they all believe in, but that cause would not have been the gospel. It wouldn't have been the gospel. We could take some giant steps forward in church growth, but I think if we did that, we'd be taking giant steps back in our Great Commission call and to outsiders who disagree with us. They would revile the name and teaching of Jesus because of our actions, and it's happened all across the world. Our call, as Paul is saying here, is not to gather like-minded people, but reach the lost. That's our call. It hurts. It's, it's real. It's visceral. I, 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 to get up here and do the welcome this morning and have the mask off while you're wearing it was almost impossible. Paul says, slave, obey your master. It's shocking. It's one thing to say you believe in the authority of the word, but it's quite another when obedience is inconvenient, annoying, or irritating, isn't it? Paul says, obey for the sake of the unbelieving outsider. It's the attitude of servitude. And as I said, if our elders come to a place where we get to a point where we're convicted and we say, you know what, this has crossed over into asking us to sin, you better believe every one of them will stand arm in arm and stand with you and say, now is time. Now is time. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Let's talk about the... Ad- yeah, it's, it's I, can you, I hope you sense my heart is right there with you in this, and so are your elders. I don't know what next week's going to look like or the week after, but I know we can still be here and sing and praise Jesus together. Let's look at the attitude of the Christian slave with the Christian master now. How do we behave in front of those who aren't Christians and how that impacts them? We've got to think about that. It really matters to Paul. I'll become a servant to all for the sake of the gospel. It really matters. But what about with the Christian now? So a Christian slave with a Christian master. Here, let's look at this point too. Harmony between brothers benefits the church and adorns the gospel. Apparently, this is where the trouble in Timothy's church had arisen now. So the, the, uh, the egalitarian nature of the gospel in terms of an individual's dignity and worth and, and image bearing was making some slaves rebel against their masters inside the church. Who are you to think you can boss me around was kind of the attitude that was probably going on. Who are you? Who are you to say something to me? Look at verse 2. Let's get the, 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 the clear text here. Those who have believing masters now must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers, so both Christians, rather they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So Paul called for harmony 
which is the, what the book is already, really, this letter is already, already talked about quite a bit, but he's calling for harmony here between the relationship and the church because it would benefit, actually, the believing master. And it adorned the gospel to the world. What Paul's getting at here is when, when there's fighting and infighting in the church or, or division or splitting or, or severing, we give the enemy ground. Like he said, Hymenaeus and Alexander who were handed over to Satan and, and, and some of the widows, young widows, who were giving Satan a foothold with their behavior. We can't give in to this, this cynical mindset that was going on here between slave and master. Paul takes it and says, you should actually serve all the more because the person is a believer. He's your brother. She's your sister. Remember family of God from was it last week maybe? The harmony in the church would do, do what? It would lift the gospel in the community's eyes. Kent Hughes says it so well in his commentary, I wanted to quote it this week. He says, here again is what is at stake in the spread of the gospel, our mission to a lost world. The enhancement and elevation of relationships in the church, the harmony of households with slaves and masters would testify to the world about Christ's reality. The unity of purpose of both slave and master would enable whole houses and churches to reach the lost in dynamic accord, means of one mind. Together, they were on a, a mission that was much bigger than the relationship of slave and master. They were on a much higher, bigger purpose, an attitude of servitude that would bring harmony and adorn the gospel. Look what Paul says in Titus. I love uh, these verses. Because of what it says about adorning uh, the Savior. He says, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, well not argumentative, not, not pilfering, not stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything, everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. It's beautiful. He says, in everything, adorn the gospel. Some synonyms for adorn, decorate, deck it, garnish it, beautify it, do it up, emblaze, festoon. Who uses that word? Nobody. Enrich, gussy up. Our lives aren't the gospel. Your life is not the gospel. But your life can shine a light on Jesus and the gospel when we serve. That's what Paul's getting at here. The attitude of servitude. Jesus said, they'll see your good deeds and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. So think for a moment then. What kind of servitude relationships are you in? Think about your life for a minute. What type of servitude arrangements, relationships do you have in your life? Well, husbands with wives. Wives with husbands. It's, it's servanthood. Love her as Christ loved the church. Wives submit to him and follow him. It's servitude both ways. Kids, are youth that are left in here. Kids with your parents. Obeying your parents when you don't understand why you just can't get an iPhone like everybody else. 
or watch the movie that everybody else has seen or everybody else is talking about or why, why are you making me go to church when I just want to sleep in when you obey that is servitude that Christ sees and he's pleased with. How about parents? Servitude. Parents, you give up so much. You're serving your children. How many meals? And this is grandparents too, maybe. Loads of laundry. Maybe not laundry and diapers for grandparents. That's why you send them back. Laundry and diapers. But parents, how many meals? How many loads of laundry? How many diapers? How many late night talks after breaking curfew? How much less money to spend on yourself? It's servitude. You give everything. Kids, do you hear that? Your parents have given like everything for you. Servitude. And parents are saying amen, whispering to their kids right now. <laughs> it's a lot. They've given a lot. It's servitude. Or at work, your boss, just, maybe he just annoys you. And you can't even figure out when he likes your work. But he knows you're a Christian, so you work hard for him unto the Lord. You work hard unto the Lord. That's servitude. Or at church, we're all called to submit to one another here. That's the one another's of the Bible. It's elders who are accountable to each other and then all of us to our leaders. But come on, Jeff. This is so idealistic. If you're like astute and kind of following along to you're thinking like, yeah, but this sounds impossible. An attitude of servitude. In all things, Paul, in everything adorn the gospel. Giving my taxes, like what? <laughs> in all things? How do you get the power? How do you get the attitude, the energy to give, 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 give like this? Let's look at three. True servitude is only possible in Christ for Christ, because of Christ. Can you imagine sitting there in the upper room with Jesus for the Passover meal? You're a committed Jew. You love the law. You love the idea of the Passover. You're, you're on the inner circle now with the Messiah. And you had seen, you'd seen him heal real people. You'd seen him raise the dead. You'd seen him calm a storm with his words. You had seen him walk on water. And now you've entered Jerusalem to take this baby back, to get it back take it back for the king and whatever means necessary. We're on our way in. We're going. We're going to do this thing. And we know they still didn't quite understand his mission. And now after supper, he gets up and he takes off his outer garment. He takes a towel and he ties it around his waist like an apron. And he walks over to you and he kneels down in front of you. He takes your foot in his hand and he kind of loosens the strap of your sandal 
It's weird. It's a weird moment. I mean, it's kind of awkward. It's kind of intimate. It's weird if you're thinking, like, this is kind of weird. This sounds kind of weird. It is weird. And he pulls it off and he takes the towel and he wets it and, and he begins to wipe and clean your stinky feet. Imagine that. I mean, what would you say to him? What, what are you doing? You're king, you're Messiah. What are you doing? Peter said, to that, said that exact thing to him in the story recorded in the gospel. What are you doing? Why did he say that? Who washed feet? Slaves. Slaves. It's a menial, dirty task when you live in a culture where you wear sandals, walk on dirt roads, and step in animal poop a lot. It's a menial task. And what Peter didn't quite know yet, that as he physically washed his dirty feet, Jesus was going to spiritually cleanse him as well. Wash him from all sin, not just his feet, but his whole body, as Peter says, by taking the form of what, Philippians says, a slave, a servant, a slave, and became humble and obedient to even death on a cross. Why? An attitude of servitude. Because he was obeying for the sake of God, his Father, to save humanity. You're right. You can't do this. You cannot be this kind of servant. You can't have this kind of attitude except in Christ. When he dwells in you and for Christ because you love him so much you're living for him. And because of Christ, because he's redeemed you, you can only live to serve when you see that he served so you can live. That's it. You can only live this way in service when you realize that he served so you could have a life and live. The gospel does this work in our hearts that only it can do. No other story, no other message, no other power on earth can turn your heart into a servant's heart. And you know, you just can't, you just can't know this intellectually. This can't be something you're like, yeah, I know, I know, yeah. Christ became a servant to save me. Yeah, 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 no. No, it can't just be intellectual. You have to ponder it. You have to pray it. You have to read it. You have to talk it. You have to sing it until it melts your heart. You have to see what state you were in when he became your servant. And what state was that? Ephesians 6, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become now slaves of righteousness. You see, that's, that's the only way. That's the only way to develop an attitude of gratitude. You were dead in sin, in bondage to sin, lived like a slave to sin, being dragged around by whatever desire, whatever course through your veins and your heart and your mind, absolutely taken by it. And he set you free. <laughs> and he gave everything to you when you were trapped almost in another world. You were in another world, another kingdom. And I'd say, well, you know, that's pretty strong language. I know I haven't always been good. And I know I've done some bad stuff, but I don't think I, I, don't think I was ever a slave to sin. 
I guess I'm being blunt a couple times today. (laughs) But unless you really know this, that you were a slave to sin, and even your obedience was a way of performance and getting God in your debt, unless you really see this, you are not a Christian. I know that sounds harsh, but I'm trying to say it pretty gently. (laughs) Unless you see this, A Christian who is one who says, thanks be to God, I was once a slave to sin, Ephesians 6, but now I've been set free, and if Christ has done this for me, I can grow in my attitude of servitude. I can. You can only live to serve when you see that he serves so you can live. Pray with me. Heavy thoughts for us today, Lord. Do the work that only you can do by the power of your word and transform us even if bit by bit. And to those who live for the sake of the name, those who live even in relationships of accountability and subservience to make sure nothing gets in the way of tarnishing your gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen.